0: Our Father in heaven, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the true knowledge of God, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to behold the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines full in the face of Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, you would create faith and life and repentance where there is none in our midst this morning. Create love and joy and peace and patience and goodness and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, O Lord, as we see the beauty of Jesus, the image of the invisible God. And grant, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit will just come down and open our eyes to see the beauty of Christ, who He is and what He's done for us. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. And well, if you would please take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me in the Scriptures to John chapter one, and we will read together from verse fourteen to verse eighteen. I don't think we can finish this this week. A dear sister left a, a piece of religious comedy on my desk this morning. I came in and it was a it was a cartoon, and in it the minister in the cartoon said, "Lord, I say a little prayer." Help me say some of your worthwhile stuff and nudge me when I've said enough. And there's always next week, so we're going to come back next week and finish this, God willing, but we'll begin this morning. We can't, we can't spend too many weeks thinking about the glory of Jesus enfleshed for us, can we? John one fourteen. please listen carefully. This is the word of the living God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because He was before me. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, literally in the Greek it says, the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side or in the Father's bosom, He has made Him known. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures for ever. Well, this morning I want to consider with you the glory of Jesus enfleshed. It's the glory of God Himself, and it's the glory and the substance of our holy religion. Sadhu Sundar Singh was a Hindu holy man. He was born in 1889, and he was born to wealthy, affluent parents in India, even back then, and was raised to be a Hindu priest. And he hated Christianity. He was trained by his parents to hate Christ and Christianity. When he was 15 years old, he burned a copy of the New Testament publicly as a testament of his thoughts of our religion. Well, three days later, in in a way that I cannot quite describe or explain, he had a vision of Christ one night when he was sleeping I know another Indian brother who was converted the same way. It's one of those unusual ways of God's dealings with man, mankind in this age when the spirit of prophecy, new prophecy, has by and large ceased. And yet, sometimes God does what only God can do. And he, he, he revealed a vision to Sundar Singh. He came to conviction of sin and was converted radically. That night, And from that moment on, he dedicated himself to serving Christ. He became a preacher, and he wandered India during the 19th century proclaiming the Lord Jesus and the gospel. And there was one time he came to a Hindu uh, college, and there one of the lecturers took him aside and said to him, "'What does your Christianity give you that Hinduism doesn't?' And Thunder Singh says, "'Sir, it gives me Christ.'" And the professor said, no, son, you don't understand. What particular doctrine, what particular idea, what particular concept, what particular ethic does Christianity give you that Hinduism doesn't give you? And Singh says, sir, the particular doctrine, the particular concept, the particular ethic, the particular idea that that, that Christianity gives me that I find nowhere else is Jesus Christ. And that's the essence of our message this morning, and it's the essence of the passage before us. John Stott, in his remarkable book, The Incomparable Christ, and I found Thundersing's story in that book, he says, the incarnation of Christ was not a visitation of God, it was the incarnation of God, the Son. He became a human being in Jesus of Nazareth. The paradox is amazing. The Creator assumed the human frailty of His creatures. The Eternal One entered time. The All-Powerful made Himself vulnerable. The All-Holy exposed Himself to temptation. And in the end, the immortal died." our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And this morning in our text, we have three questions. What actually happened in the virgin's womb? What did it mean for Jesus? And thirdly, what should it mean for you this morning? What actually happened, first of all, in the virgin's womb? Well, John tells us the Word became flesh, In other words, without ceasing to be what he'd always been, he became something he had never been before. Think about that. Without ceasing to be what he'd always been, he became something he had never been before. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, Glory glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I think I got that great sentence from Donald MacLeod. It's just one of those fantastic summaries of theology. Without ceasing to be what he'd always been, he became something he'd never been before. The Word became flesh. John's language is incredibly bold. He could have said he was made man. He could have said he came in the form of a bondservant, which Paul says in Philippians 2. He could have also said what Paul said, he came in... the the schemata of of the human, human schematics. But actually what John says is, is incredibly bold. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Leon Morris says, this word flesh is a strong, almost crude way of referring to human nature. Calvin says, John here describes the disdainfully frail and perishing nature that God took in Christ. Flesh. In John's day, it would have been remarkably offensive. The Greeks, especially the Gnostics, they believed, boys and girls, that our bodies were shameful. All those bulges bifocals, baldness, and bad breath, I suppose. But they believed that our bodies were shameful and that they were to be escaped. They had a, they had a saying, "Suma sema. suma body, sema, tomb. Body, tomb. And they look forward to death, getting out of the body, getting away from the body. So the, the, the flesh in their mind was something to be escaped not something to be embraced, not by man, and certainly not by God. Donald MacLeod, in his wonderful little book, From Glory to Golgotha, says, To have become flesh is to be flesh, a salutary reminder that humanness is not simply attached to Christ like a mask or a garment or an artificial limb. It is something which he is and through which he effectively expresses himself. The word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. We've heard that so many times we, we, we kind of lose the wonder of it. There's a wonderful story about Sunday school teachers and it's true I'm told. Um, this Sunday school teacher was teaching her children, and she asked them one lesson to list as many mammals as she could. And so the boys and girls dutifully said, "Well, birds, yes; cats, yes; dogs, yes; squirrels, yes; gerbils, yes; giraffes, yes." And the list went on. Wheels, yes. That's good. A wheel is a mammal. Yes, exactly. Then one wee boy at the back of the class went, "Jesus." And she almost fell over. It seemed kind of (laughs) irreverent to speak of God the Son as a mammal, a hairy, warm-blooded creature. And then she thought to herself, well, that's actually true. Yes, Jesus is a mammal. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Paul, you remember, in Romans 8, goes one step further than that. It's an incredible statement. What the law could not do and that it was weak, God did by doing what? By sending His Son in the likeness of what? In the likeness of sinful flesh. That's an incredible statement. It wasn't, Jesus was not a sinner. His flesh at no point was sinful, was free and untainted by human sin. But you'd never have known that just to look at him. He came in the likeness of a sinful flesh. At first glance, you'd have thought he was an ordinary sinner just like you and me. Jeff Thomas, who was Derek's pastor way back when he was first converted, says this. He's describing Christ's baptism, and this is one of the just, it's a great quote vintage Jeff Thomas. There's a great line of repentant sinners standing soberly and sorrowing on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down into the waters, the dirty waters of the Jordan to be baptized. Survey them there in your mind with me, standing in that long, guilty line. There's a thief, a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife-beater, an idol worshiper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a braggart, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, a spendthrift, and hundreds more every one a sinner. And there is Jesus made in the likeness of sinful flesh, standing in line between the torturer and the murderer, indistinguishable outwardly, but inwardly he's holy without sin. As the prophet said, Messiah would be numbered with the transgressors. He stands with sinners in solidarity. He stands for sinners in substitution. He will hang on a tree as the Lamb of God and bear the sins of the world. At last, He will do more than stand with them in their sin. He will be made, He will become sin for them. That is why He stands here in the sinner's baptism, because one day He will climb Golgotha in love and stand in the closest possible contact with sinners, taking responsibility for their sin, and answering for it before the throne of God. Can you imagine the humility of Jesus, the Son of God, coming not just in the flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh? Think of it like this It's New Year's Eve. You're driving home from a party. You've had no alcohol, but the police pull you over and you do the breathalyzer thing in the jigger, and it's broken and you blow over the limit, and the, you're taken to the jail. And the jail's full, it's Christmas, it's New Year's Eve. So they take you to the county lockup, and it's full too, but there's one space. And the space is in the child abuser's wing, where they put perverts and pedophiles. And the sheriff apologizes, but you kind of go and you sit there in your cell with all of the perverts and child abusers and, and get through the night as best you can. In the morning you get up, you're down for breakfast and you have to sit with the child abusers and the perverts at the table, eating your breakfast. And then to your horror, Christian Amanpur is there with all of the cameras and CNN doing a special on the rise of child molestation in America. And the camera pans down the line of child abusers. And there's you sitting between Tommy and Johnny eating your breakfast and you're not a child abuser but no one would ever know that to look at you and you think of that image being beamed on the television and all of your friends at first church seeing you sitting numbered with perverts can you imagine the embarrassment well, Jesus didn't just spend a night as the likeness of sinful flesh. He spent his whole life living in that shadow. People underestimating him, people overlooking him, people ignoring him. And he did that because he loves you. Isn't he lovely? What did that mean for Jesus? That's what happened at the Incarnation. What did it actually mean for Jesus? Well, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's important to remember that he became flesh, but he didn't cease to be God. John is very clear. He became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. We're going to come back to that next week and look at it in more detail. But we beheld his glory. The word for "beheld" or "saw" in the ESV carries the idea of to see beneath the surface appearance of things. We saw the reality behind the the veneer. We saw His glory. This week, I was at dinner with a family from the church, and their ten-year-old son invited me to play chess after dinner. Now, I play a little chess. When I was a child, especially, and then during my sabbatical, I began again. And so I'm an average chess player, but he's 10 years of age. I thought, no problem. Have a wee chess game, and then we will uh, eventually, reluctantly, check me at the lad. (laughs) You look at that wee lad, he's he's a 10-year-old boy. Don't let appearances deceive you, he's a chess genius. The moment his hands began to move the pieces on the board, I knew I was in trouble. He had an unusual opening, queen pawn to d4, and I thought, that's unusual. I was expecting the king pawn, but nonetheless, and then he starts moving, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get checkmated in four moves if I'm not very, very careful. I'm trying to get my wits about me, and uh, eventually the inevitable happened. He beat me. Um, I saw beneath the appearance of things quickly, But when you look at Jesus, Paul says, we saw Him and we saw His glory. The very glory of God Himself. The word glory in the Old Testament is the Shekinah glory, the, the visible manifestation of the weightiness of God. We saw Him. Not just the glory of a great man, not just the greatest man who ever lived, but we saw the glory of the great God of heaven in Him. full of grace and truth. John's describing here that time in Moses' life. You remember in Exodus whenever Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I'll cause my glory to pass by you, but you can't see it. It'll kill you. And so God comes down, and He puts Moses, you remember, in the cleft of the rock and covers him with his hand, and the glory passes by, and the glory is not seen. It's heard. Interesting. It's the word that Moses hears that reveals the glory. As the Lord proclaimed before him the name of the Lord, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation, and so forth. Abounding in steadfast love and truth, you take those Hebrew ideas, chesed and amen, and you translate them into Greek, and you get full of grace and truth. We beheld His glory. The glories of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. What John is saying is the glory that Moses heard is the very glory that we saw in the face of Jesus. That's who He is. So whatever becoming flesh meant for Jesus, it didn't in any way mean an abbreviation of his deity. Look at the next verse there as he walks down through the passage. John bore witness about him and said, this was he of whom we said, after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. Why does he insert John, John the Baptist's testimony here? Because he wants you to know that when Christ became flesh, He didn't lose any of the eternality of the great I Am. And then in the last verse of the passage, John 1.18, it literally says, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who dwells in the bosom of the Father, He has exegeted Him before us, like a preacher exegeting a passage. Now, that's a scandalous phrase, the only begotten God, and later, prof, later scribes couldn't bring themselves to write it, so they changed it. They put only begotten Son, which is why in the New King James and the King James Version and the Authorized Version, you'll have um, only begotten Son. But actually, we have since discovered more ancient manuscripts to go right back to the third and fourth century. And in those manuscripts it's not only begotten Son, it's the only begotten God. And he's John's unscoring, Jesus is God. He's called names, only God should be called. He existed when only God was there. He is the way only God can be. He does things only God can do. And he receives worship only God should get. He's God. Well, how can that be? How can you be God and man in, in two distinct natures. Well, that's the thing. We're telling that this morning to the children in the, in the children's sermon. Who is the only Redeemer of God's elect? The only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who being the eternal Son of God, became man and so was and continues to be two distinct natures in one person forever. So, you think about it. You're a human being with a human nature. That's the way you've always been. You're a human person with a human nature. Jesus is a divine person with a divine nature. If it can be said of God, it must be said of him. Well, in the womb of the virgin, Jesus added to himself another nature, a human nature. And so now he's both God and man, a human nature and a divine nature. And those two natures are held apart. They don't mix they don't consume one another. He's not half God and half man. He's completely God and completely man. Unabridged, undiluted deity and unabridged and undiminished humanity. Let's think then, what did that mean for Jesus? And very briefly at the end we'll think, what, did that, what should that mean for you? What did that mean for Jesus? Jesus. Well, the most important thing to think about this morning is that Jesus never used his divine nature to make his human life easier for himself. The two natures are held apart. He was as dependent upon the Holy Spirit as Samson was for his supernatural strength or as any of the other prophets were to receive a revelation from God. He was as dependent upon the Spirit of God as I am this morning. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and He has anointed me to preach. You remember those staggering words in Mark 6 when He was in Nazareth, and it says He could not do many miracles there because of His unbelief, because of their unbelief, sorry. He could not do... Older scribes too changed that to he did not do many miracles there but the most ancient manuscripts say he could not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Their unbelief had grieved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit withdrew and Jesus was left in the weakness of human flesh. He couldn't fly because humans don't do that unless the Holy Spirit gave them the strength to fly but, but he had human nature Whenever he was tempted by the devil in the wilderness, you remember the devil comes along. We'll look at this in more detail in a few weeks on Wednesdays, lunchtime. But the devil said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. What was Jesus' answer? And the first word out of Christ's mouth is the secret to the whole answer. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. I'm not here to be God. To do what I want when I want. I'm here to be a man, and as a man, I eat when my Father says I eat. He is my God, my Creator, and I don't have the right to eat unless He gives it to me. Man. Which means Jesus experienced our weakness from the inside, He had a real body that was limited. It was here and not there. In his divine nature, he's filling the heavens. But in his humanity, he is here, stuck in one place. He was hungry and thirsty and exhausted. So tired, he slept in the midst of a hurricane. and the boat, water splashing in his face. The disciples, seasoned fishermen, are terrified, but Christ is so exhausted, he's sleeping. Carrying the cross down the Via Dolorosa, he's dehydrated, he's lost blood, and he's crushed beneath the weight of the cross. He doesn't reach across into the divine nature to pull omnipotence in. He is exhausted. He experienced growth. He was an ovum freshly conceived by the Holy Spirit half of his DNA coming from his mother, the rest created by God, and he's tumbling down the fallopian tube of a virgin, nestling in her womb and growing, waiting for his mind, his brain to develop, for him to learn to think and to be conscious. He's born of her, yet without sin, but his birth was unceremonious and violent, not into one of those pristine, sterile, Delivery wards that are more like a five star hotel and a resort that we have here, ladies. But he was born into a stable, a cold, wet night, greeted by the acrid stench of the manure and urine of cows and donkeys. And he grew up through all of the stages of life, he was a baby helpless in his mother's arms, able only to fill his diaper and suck at her breast and to cry when the deed was done. He was a clumsy infant, the one who walked with Adam in the garden, who plants his footsteps in the storm, had to learn to walk as a 12-month, 18-month-old toddler. How do we do this thing? Okay, right foot, move. Move. was the awkward preteen. He was a pubescent teenager trying to come to grips with himself as testosterone surged through his body. Human body. He had a reasonable soul, which means he had a human mind. He had to learn the way you learn. There were things he did not know. No man knows the day or the hour of my second coming, he said, except the Father in heaven. He had to submit himself that there were certain things his father wouldn't reveal to him. He grew in wisdom. He's never foolish. But his wisdom grew. He was better and sharper at 30 than he was at 13. He was appropriately immature as a child. He had a reasonable mind. He had also a true soul, Emotions. He knew joy at the wedding of Cana. He knew compassion when he walked toward Nain. And he saw this old woman walk out at the head of a funeral procession. And she was already a widow. Her husband had died, but now she had lost, Luke says, her only begotten son. And Jesus looks at her and he sees, I think, a picture of his father losing, about to lose his only begotten son. And The the, the sadness of that moment grips him. And even though he's about to turn the wedding into a party, his heart is still moved with compassion. If that was me, I'd think, I've got this. It's okay. no room for compassion. Zip, zip, zip. And the child's raised. Everything's great. Back on with the day. But Christ's heart was much more tender than that. He was moved with compassion, seeing her in her sorrow. He knew the shame as a young lad growing up in Nazareth where people were talking that his mother was knocked up by a Roman soldier behind the cattle shed. Remember the Pharisees said, we know who our father is. And that was a jab. He was grieved by the Pharisees and their hardness of heart, and his disciples' stubborn unbelief. And when he came upon Jerusalem in that last week, and he saw Jerusalem, he felt the sting of rejection. He came to his own, and he just wept real salty tears, my people how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you are not willing. In Gethsemane, he learned new emotions, maybe sorrows. He was called, remember, Isaiah says he calls him the man not of sorrow, but the man of sorrows, plural, as if all of the sorrows of the world coalesced on his head and rested upon his shoulders. He was lonely. His father had begun to withdraw from him. An angel was sent, Fred Leakey says, but only an angel. The father had begun already to pull the presence back. And he wants Peter, James, and John to sit with him as in his hour of sorrow, but they fell asleep, lonely, and then fear. And he's trying to wrestle in his finite human mind with what it will mean to become the sin of the world in the presence of the infinite fury of God. And he's terrified. He feels like a little boy with a flashlight trying to plumb the depths of the cosmos, And of course, the implement, the flashlight is altogether too small to to plumb the depths of the object, the cosmos. And here's Christ's mind trying to imagine what it will be tomorrow when he becomes sin. And he's lost in wonder, horror, and fear. And on the morrow, there'll be no imagining, but just the reality of it. How can that be? How can Jesus be abandoned? Because you remember on the cross, He's abandoned not in His divine nature. The Trinity is not torn apart. In the divine nature, He's with His Father. But in His human nature, He's abandoned. You think, well, that couldn't have been that bad. Well, let me put it like this. You've got two hands, right? A right one and a left one. If I took your left hand and plunged it into boiling oil, would the fact that your right hand was still in an air-conditioned room make you feel better? Because one of your two hands has been just put, burnt to pieces. And so for Jesus, his divine nature being with the Father was wonderful, but his human nature experienced experienced the undiluted, unabridged fury of God forever, compressed into those hours of darkness upon the cross. But it wasn't a highlight reel of hell. He experienced eternal and infinite wrath in his divine person through that human nature as he bore the sins of his people. Isn't he wonderful? And he had a human choice, faculty of will, human mind, human emotions. He had to choose. Boys and girls, we're almost finished. Do you remember maybe when you jumped off a high board the first time and you stood on the edge and looked over and you think, oh no, <laughs> and your dad's going, it's okay, just one wee small step, and you're going, that's easy for you to say, <laughs> it's a long way down, and you had to choose, you chose to jump off the board, you chose, and your father was so pride, proud of you, well, the Bible says Jesus grew in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man in his human nature, it's incredible. Men began to notice him as he grew up, and his father also felt that swelling pride. He was never out of favor, but as his capacity for obedience and self-denial and self-sacrifice increased, his father was more and more and more proud until that moment in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's faced with the prospect of becoming your sin. And facing the wrath of God and the cup of the curse of God placed before him. And he says, Father, there's got to be another way. And the father says, no, son, there's no other way. And he says, but there's got to be. There's no other way. And in a moment of triumphant, climactic faith, he chooses to reach and take the cup. Because he loved the father. And because he loves you. He gave himself up. And he gave himself to the wrath of God and his father, the favor of the father. It was never more, oh, my son, my only son whom I love. Humanity and deity joined together in one person for eternity. What, What should this mean for you? Let me just leave you with a quote. If Jesus is the answer, and He is the answer, how great must the question be? If the question is, how can you be saved? And the answer that infinite wisdom gives is that My Son must become flesh. And then he must become sin. And then he must become cursed. That's the only answer. How great must the problem be? You can't fix it. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, that's why we're here worshiping Jesus. We can't fix it. Trying harder to sing hymns louder doesn't work. Trying harder to read the Bible more frequently doesn't work. Trying harder to be a better person doesn't work because I am not a nice person to begin with. And that which is born of the flesh is flesh. How, how can I fix But sin is broken? And I can't. The only person who can fix it is Jesus. And here's Bishop Riley. And I'll leave you with this. Let us mark what kind of being the Redeemer of mankind must needs be in order to provide eternal redemption for sinners. If no one less than the eternal God, the creator and preserver of all things, could take away the sin of the world, sin must be a far more abominable thing in the sight of God than most men suppose. The right measure of sin's sinfulness is the dignity of him who came into the world to save sinners, if Christ is so great and great he is." Then sin must be an exceedingly sinful thing. And most men think sin's nothing. Just a wee genuflection in church is forgiven. John Owen said, He that never had great thoughts of sin never once had a great thought of God. And the way to measure the wickedness of sin is the cost, the appalling cost of its atonement. And Jesus has come, my brothers and sisters, to provide atonement full and free for your sins and mine. And He is full of grace and truth. He's as big as God, yet as small as a baby, and He came to die, not to do half a job of salvation, but to do a full job of saving you from your sins and if you will look to him if you will lift to him the empty dirty hands of faith that give nothing to Jesus but sin he will save you first he will save you last he will save you every step in between because he is what his name says the savior who will save his people from sin their sins come to you come to him he's already come to you come for you and he will save you let's pray father in heaven we thank you for your mercies that endure forever we pray lord that you would reveal your son's glory and majesty to us that we might love him and serve him with all of our hearts And if there's any here who don't yet know him, we plead with you, Lord, open their eyes and show them Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.